0: It's gonna be about facts, about Alzheimer's, what we know, and also more about what we don't know, because unfortunately, we don't know much about uh, the mechanism of the disease. And then I will talk about the current therapies, and which are symptomatic therapies, and then the current clinical trial, or the one that has recently failed. And then I will talk um, talk a little bit about my uh, research, which is on calcium signaling and learning about the molecular mechanism of the disease, because if we want to target uh, new, um, or to design new uh, drugs, we need to understand the mechanism of the disease, and so I'm interested in the molecular um, mechanism of the disease. So you probably know that the disease was described more than a century ago by Alois Alzheimer's, and that is the f- most common form of dementia. Currently, there are five million of Americans who live with the disease, and if we don't find a cure, um, it's expected to be uh, to quadruple by 2050, since the population ages and people are living longer than before. So, without a cure, uh, those numbers are gonna. Uh, quadruple. Right now, it's the fifth uh, leading cause of death for a uh, patient over 65, and there is uh, someone who develops the disease every 72 uh, seconds. Now, the cause, even though it was described for the first time more than a century ago, we still don't know uh, the cause, and um, what we know is that the greatest risk factor is actually uh, the increasing age. And there are two different types of onset: uh, The early onset, which actually represent only 1% of the Alzheimer's case, and it's known as the FAD for uh, familial Alzheimer's disease, and occur before the age of 65. And then the late onset, which is uh, the sporadic form of Alzheimer's disease, and which represent actually 99% of all cases, and occurs after the age of 65. And there is some patient variation uh, for the uh, duration of the disease and after uh, the onset, patient can live from 8 to 20 years with um, the disease. <coughs> In terms of genetic variation, uh, first of all, there is a genetic polymorphism polymorphism on the apo- lipoprotein E and the APOE4, so the, f- the fourth allele, is considered as a risk factor for the sporadic and the familial late onset of Alzheimer's disease. And so EpoE4 is a protein that transports um, the cholesterol, but also the triglycerides. And there are different uh, genotypes. And in these studies, they look at the genotype uh, within healthy uh, patient. And so E3, E3 is actually Consider like E3 allele is considered as the normal allele of the APOE protein, and healthy patient or healthy men and women, uh, the E3 E3 allele is the most frequent um, in human. Then E3 E4 is the second uh, most frequent, and then as you see the other one are less. The other genotype are less um, abundant. Now in a study where they look at the genotype within Alzheimer's population. Alzheimer's patient, like on 42 uh, families with uh, Alzheimer's disease, they notice that when um, the A, uh, genotype E4, E4 is present, 99% of those uh, patients has Alzheimer's. Mm. And uh, E3, E4 is present in 47% of Alzheimer's patients. There was no uh, patient with Alzheimer's disease who has the E2E2 E2, uh, in that studies. Now in terms of mutations, so there are also several mutations that are known uh, to be responsible for the familial form for the early onset of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, some mutation on the APO, uh, APP protein, which is the amyloid precursor protein, and mutation, several mutations were identified on the in one or two genes with uh, code for uh, the presenilin protein. And those mutations are responsible for most of the case of the early onset autosomal dominant familial AD. So what are those proteins? Here are some molecular <laughs> mechanism. <laughs> and so APP, which is the amyloid precursor protein, um, is cleaved by different enzymes, such as the alpha secretase, beta secretase, and following the beta secretase cleavage, you see you have... Uh, This fragment can be further cleaved by the gamma secretase into a smaller fragment, which is known as amyloid beta 42. And so far, amyloid beta 42 is responsible for the toxicity and the neurodegeneration. This fragment uh, can oligomerize, so it can aggregate and has different uh, conformational uh, states starting from a single piece, or two, three, four, and then form those big uh, plaques. And so mutation in this uh, APP gene, which encodes for APP protein, is responsible for abnormal production of A-beta 42. And then same thing for PS1 and PS2, which are part of the gamma secretase complex. So mutation in those um, genes lead to abnormal um, PS1 and PS2, and then abnormal prediction of amyloid beta 42. Now there is another protein that is involved in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's, which is tau. And tau actually um, stabilizes the microtubule. And in Alzheimer's disease, that protein is hyperphosphorylated, and when it's phosphorylated, tau doesn't um, bond to the microtubule anymore. And then the microtubules become unstable, and those uh, hyperphosphorylated fragments start also to aggregate and form what is called the neurofibrillary tangles. In terms of the disease and the gender, there is a higher prevalence in um, female compared (coughs) to uh, in men. And this prevalence, of course, increasing with age, as you can see on this uh, figure. So at the age of 75, <coughs> you see that you have an increase in the prevalence. And then the incre- it's even increasing more at the age of 85. Now, it is unknown whether it is um, an increase of the incidence or if the woman live longer with the disease. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's known that the duration, like men's, doesn't live as long with the disease compared to uh, woman, so it might not be an increase in the incidence, but just a reflection of um, the time that the, that woman can live with dementia. Or maybe that after the age of 85, we have higher new risk factors and an increase um, risk of developing the disease. Now in terms of the clinical features, you probably all know here, what are the symptoms. Uh, So the pattern begin with the memory loss for the recent event. And then as the damage uh, spreads, patient uh, experience confusion, disorganized thinking, impaired judgment, trouble expressing themselves, and disorientation. I don't know if you read or heard in the news last week, but there was a man who was missing for two days. It was a 65 years old man. And it was found alive uh, in the Santa Clarita ra- uh, Ravine. Mm-hmm. And actually, that uh, man has Alzheimer's, epilepsy, and other brain injuries. 65, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the final stages of the disease uh, patient lose their ability mm-hmm. to communicate. They fail to recognize the loved one. They become bedbound. And unfortunately, the disease is ultimately uh, fatal. I don't know if you had a chance to see the HBO. The Alzheimer Project on HBO. If you don't have HBO, you can watch the films actually online. Mm. And there oh. are different uh, films. Some are about caregivers. Some are about science and all the beta and Tau. And uh, there is one also uh, in which uh, Maria Shriver is and yeah. talk about. They're her. very good actually. Yeah. they on the Alzheimer website. Yeah. So if you have a chance to, to, to look at them to that, the Alzheimer website there, Now in terms of the brain pathology, um, you have a cerebellar atrophy as um, illustrated here. So this is an Alzheimer brain and this is a healthy brain. This is due to the neuron and the synapses loss. And this uh, occurs in the cerebral cortex, but also in some uh, subcortical region. And of course it initiates in regions which are involved <coughs> in uh, forming new memories, such as the uh, entorhinal cortex and the hippocampus. Now, the hallmark already mentioned about uh, the formation of those plaques. but So again, you have you know abnormal cleavage. We don't know yet if it's an abnormal cleavage or an abnormal uh, clearance of the peptide, but the result is that uh, EBITDA uh, oligomerize to form these different uh, forms. And now it's believed that actually the soluble forms, the small oligomers, which are the dimers and the trimers, might be the most toxic species and not the plaque as it was uh, speculated at the beginning. And the other uh, hallmark of the disease is the presence of those uh, neurofibrillary tangles. So here we have a normal neuron and this is uh, a disease neuron in which you see those uh, microtubules are not stable anymore. And then when the neuron die, just release those uh, neurofibrillary tangles and all those toe fragments. And this is a microscopy of uh, a brain section that was stained with uh, a silver staining. So here you have a a neuron that is uh, degenerating, and here it's an amyloid plaque. So what are the factors that contribute to the progression of the disease? And that's what us scientists, we are trying to, understand, is it an impaired APP cleavage or an abnormal A-beta clearance? Is it a calcium, this homeostasis? Some inflammatory process might also be involved in the pathology. What we know is that we observe A-beta aggregation. We observe the tau phosphorylation. Neuron and synapse loss, also those neuronal circuits that are uh, dysfunction. And this is reflected by the clinical sign and the symptoms. And then after Mm -hmm. the death, the autopsy can confirm uh, the clinical side by uh, the presence of uh, the senile plaques or the tangone. Of course, there are some (coughs) imperfections in the correlation. Some patients might not have A-beta and has clinical impairment. Mm -hmm. Or uh, demented patients don't have A-beta. So there are still some questions or don't have plaque, doesn't mean maybe they have the soluble A-beta. And too, in the hmm Now in terms of treatment, um, so far there is no disease-modifying uh, therapy that are um, available. Of course, um, medical management is important just to improve uh, the quality of life through uh, all stage of uh, the disease. The current treatment, there are two different classes of drugs, the acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, which blocks the degradation of acetylcholine, so makes more acetylcholine available in the synaptic cleft. And this is uh, the nepazil, which is the most prescribed uh, drug for the moment, and which is usually the first um, drug that is prescribed and then nementin, which is an nmd receptor antagonist is add on to uh Aricep, once aryset doesn't do any uh, doesn't have any effect and this one is an nmd receptor antagonist which is a uh, glutamate receptor uh, subtype now what what is in the pipeline what are the current and the past uh, clinical trials so i'm going to talk about the most relevant or the most recent uh, results which unfortunately is not so, so good. And mm-hmm. this is just to um, illustrate the different step in the drug uh, development. My student already mm-hmm. saw <laughs> so this mm-hmm. slide. And it's in French, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> so first you have I the, pre the <laughs> <laughs> preclinical testing, which is all the in vitro testing and the animal testing just to determine some of the mechanism of action and the toxicity and the efficacy on an animal model. And then you have the phase one which is on healthy volunteer just to determine the safety of the drug. And then phase two and phase three are the phase where they give the the drug to the actual uh, patient who has the disease. And phase two is a small uh, group of patients, And then phase three is a larger group of patients. And then if the phase three is successful, it will go, it's a new drug uh, application, and then uh, we'll go to the phase four, which is the post-marketing <laughs> surveillance. But um, NEMENDA was approved in 2003, and since then, there is nothing that was approved for um, Alzheimer's disease. It was approved earlier in Europe, in here. Yeah, I checked on the FDA yeah, website, yeah, and it was yeah. 2003, yeah, and then receipt was, was yeah. in 97. Yeah, because I know when I was in Barcelona for Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So it's seven already been seven years since um, there was a new class of drug. Now I'm going to start with this one because you might have heard uh, the release last week of the preliminary results on this drug. And so when I was in Vienna in uh, July at the ICAT conference, that was the drug that everybody was looking at. A lot of marketing around and a lot of hope for Uh It's actually a drug that is used for allergies in Russia and it's approved there. It's an anti staminate. Also, has some serotonergic effect, and so you are expected to see some cholinergic effect, some glutamatergic effect. Um, in AD, the mechanism of action is unknown, but maybe has some effect on the mitochondria and so on the oxidative stress. Uh, So the result of the phase two trial from 2008 was very promising. Uh, 11 sites in Russia, around 200 patients were enrolled with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. They received uh, 10 milligrams three times a day for one week and then they increased the dose to 20 milligrams for 25 weeks. And the primary outcome was the uh, Alzheimer's disease assessment scale on cognition. And the secondary measurement were uh, also some other uh, tests, such as the MMSE and the behavior with the neuropsychiatric um, inventory. Everything was translated from English to Russian and back to English just to uh, publish and interpret those results. So um, results were very promising. You see clinical improvement with Dimebond for the ads clinical improvement for the MMSE score with the Dimebon and then also significant difference for the behavioral uh, symptoms. But last Wednesday mm-hmm. uh, Medivation, which is the company was, uh, you know, uh, promoting the trial you know, revealed that actually the phase three clinical trial, which was a multi-center in Europe, and 40% of the sites were in the U.S., and they didn't see any difference in the primary, neither in the secondary um, outcome. 600 patients were enrolled. Same same dose. They have a 5 milligram uh, dose just to determine the minimum effective dose. And the outcome, so no difference. So of course, all the families who were expecting to see a new treatment were very disappointed. And Pfizer, who sponsored mm-hmm. and gave $725 upfront to sponsor the study, I'm sure were even more uh, disappointed. Was it 20 milligrams before the previous at 20? Yeah, they increased uh, 10 the, the first week and then they increased oh, to 20, okay, okay. yeah. So Dimabon, I think we are not gonna hear about it anymore. Uh, it wasn't actually a disease-modifying drug anyway, so, but it was still, you know, a that nice. drug that could have, have you know, a huge impact on the, on the cognition. So there are other um, strategies, and these are strategies that are really disease-modifying strategies, which are the anti uh, amyloid treatment. The first class of drug are the gamma secretase inhibitors, and there are two different uh, components: teriflurbil, which is also known as uh, flurbiprofen, which here in the U.S. it's approved uh, as an NSAID, and then you have the semagacestat, <laughs> which is a drug in uh, the Eli um, Lilly pipeline, and this is uh, on phase three trial, so I'm gonna uh, talk about the result. <coughs> and then the other uh, strategy is just a vaccination and, and immunotherapy using uh, some anti-amyloid uh, beta monoclonal antibody, and so there are two different uh, antibody, each pharmaceutical company has one, and these are under uh, phase two and phase three clinical trial. And then GammaGuard, which actually is a uh, preparation of immunoglobulin that are obtained from healthy patient and they are expecting that in those healthy patients, you would have some anti-amyloid yeah. uh, antibodies, and this is in phase two uh, right now. And it's also used for other uh, disease, not only for uh, Alzheimer's. Now, the flurbiprofen. This is the um, air and antiomer. So, if you remember your chemistry, <laughs> you have two different uh, components, like your left and your ra- right hand, and the. Our component actually has a gamma secretase uh, effect. The S1 is the one that is the NSAT, the anti-inflammatory drug, and that is approved here in the US. So mm-hmm. the results of the phase three trial was published uh, in December 2009, so recently. And then again, that drug was promising during the phase two. Actually, it wasn't that so, so promising. When you look at the data, Uh, The phase two only see an effect on the global function, but didn't see any effect on the cognition. But even though there was no effect on the cognition, they still moved it to a phase three because of the effect on the global function. And in the phase two, the study was looking at mild to moderate patient, but only the patient with mild Alzheimer's disease were responding, there was no difference for the moderate uh, patient. So they moved it to a a phase three and Give 800 milligram, and then the outcome, like for the other drug, no, uh, no improvement on the cognition, no improvement on the behavior. These are the results. So you see uh, the placebo. So after nine months of treatment, you have actually that deterioration, and in, in both, uh, in both uh, group, placebo, and really the same slope for the. The treated patient, and then here it's on the activity of the daily living and no uh, difference between placebo and flubiprofen. What is the placebo improve? They just get. It doesn't improve because the, the cognition, this when it increases, it's actually a deterioration. Oh. For that scale, if uh, the ADS oh. coq, uh, goes up, it reflects a deterioration. It like like MMSE goes down, but for ADS it increases. Um, Now, the other uh, gamma secretase inhibitor, um, there was a phase two studies where it shows no effect on the A-beta 42 levels. So biomarkers, no effect in the blood, no effect in the CSF, no effect on cognition. Mm -hmm. But because it has that gamma secretase modulation effect in vitro Mm -hmm. and in animal, again, I believe that's why they moved it to a phase three clinical trial and um, for this phase three uh, clinical trial is still in progress are we expecting something i don't know based on the pre- based on the previous based on the previous i don't think they are gonna have a lot of yeah, success with this one either no map. so all the mabs are all the monoclonal antibodies just for <laughs> your information when you yeah. see mab it's just monoclonal uh, antibodies and but it's supposed to be because it's amyloid beta, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, so the phase two clinical trial published uh, last year, so this is not uh, a drug that is administered orally, it's an IV infusion, so it's more invasive, and as you can see, the patient receives a one-hour infusion every 13 weeks, and so they receive six infusion over the trial, so over 78 uh, months. Uh, Here, the outcome are interesting in some ways that the patient are not APOE4 carrier. They they saw a difference. Actually, there is an improvement in cognition for patients that are non-APOE4 carrier, but they don't see any difference in the APOE4 carrier. But if you remember the previous slides, actually APOE4 carrier (coughs) are the one that are the most abundant patient in Alzheimer's disease. So, and then CSF biomarkers, no difference, uh, neither in the carrier versus the non-carrier. There was no, uh, no reduction of uh, A-beta 42 in the brain or neither in the CSF uh, after 18 months of treatment. <laughs> One important adverse effect is that they uh, observed some uh, vasogenic edema, and actually that uh, edema is more frequent with the higher dose. So they were treating patients with uh, 0.5, one milligram or two milligram per kilogram. So like three three group of uh, treated patients. And the one with the higher dose are more likely to develop the edema, and also if they are APOE4 carrier. So they moved it to a phase three trial, but essentially in APOE4 non-carrier. And there was another phase two clinical trial with bapenuzumab and it was actually the feature article this week on the Alzheimer Forum website. This is a small, very small uh, group of patients, only 28 patients, three clinical sites, same dosage um, and they did a PIP PEP scan, so PIB actually binds to uh, amyloid beta, to the plaques. Mm-hmm. And so they can look at the mean retention of uh, PIB. It's labeled PIB. And here they see a significant difference from the baseline in six different uh, brain regions. So there is actually a reduction in the mean retention time, which means the plaques are dissolved, or actually the antibody really binds to uh, a beta. And represent the disappointing thing is that it's only 20% that is clear, so they were expecting a much more uh, significant effect. But still, it can reflect that the drug is working, not in terms of the signification of the result. They don't see any improvement in the cognition, and they don't see any difference in the biomarkers. So what is the physiologic relevance of clearing the plaques if you don't have any improvement? And now where are those plaques cleared if they don't find it in the CSF, neither in the plasma? Maybe they can be stuck in the vessel and can explain the vasogenic edema. That can be... Uh, oh well also, we so may, may not be measuring the right things in terms of Yeah, and they had also to exclude... Some patients didn't have any amyloid beta, so those they excluded from... The, so they can determine, actually, at the beginning whether or not the patient has a high level of amyloid beta and see if there is a treatment effect by measuring the the PIP uh, PET scan. <coughs> but other than that, no effect really on the cognition. That's what you're really expecting uh, for a drug, you know, who is a disease-modifying drug. Well, of course, MSU is also not that sensitive in terms of change. Either, so maybe yeah, 20%. Maybe, maybe it's the duration, but so it's, yeah, you know, 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, so that and that's the result. So here you see, uh, this is the placebo, and then at 78 weeks, you see that you have a a uh, reduction in the retention of uh, the PIP. And this was the baseline, so there was no significant difference between placebo and uh, bapinuzumab. Then after um, treatment, so there was a reduction uh, of the retention in the bapinuzumab group, and this is the difference uh, from baseline (coughs) to uh, 78 weeks on placebo versus um, the bapinuzumab. Now, the last treatment I'm gonna talk about is uh, the toe therapy. And this one, in 2008, was the drug that ICAT everything was about, uh, this uh, Rember, which is actually methylene blue, so it's just a <laughs> dye. And this scientist, Wishik, which is also the CEO of Toe Therapeutics. <laughs> 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 a little best of interest, you think? I don't know, when you read about uh, the results, so um, there was no available peer review article at the time he published his first data on the clinical trial, and I pubmed it yesterday, there is still nothing after two years. Um, so the study was 300 patients receiving either the placebo or different um, dose, actually each group receiving uh, different dose of um, rember, And he observed an effect with the 60 milligram, which was not the highest dose. Uh, See 81% in the reduction uh, in the rate of decline of the disease with 60 milligram versus placebo. But an interesting thing is that at 84 weeks, there was no more placebo control group. So 55 weeks, he could see the difference, but what happened after? How can you compare if there is no more control group? They don't see any effect with the 100 milligram dose and they claim that maybe it's an interaction with one of the inactive ingredients, with gelatin in the capsule. And then there is no data regarding the safety and the tolerability of the drug. And also I checked on the website yesterday um, regarding clinical trials. So there is no clinical trial approved right now in the US by the FDA. On their website is a further clinical trial uh, check back later, no da- no press release on the website, so I don't know what happened to Rember. But probably has a hard time to get <laughs> the data published <laughs> with so little um, it control. Would inter- it would be good to publish the data, because then it, I mean But you probably it cannot time. get them published yeah. since it doesn't have this control group anymore. still Yeah. That I yeah. That <laughs> I don't know what happens. That's, that's the whole point of publishing negative. And then the food and the supplements. So there are also some trials that are used as an adjunct uh, therapy to uh, Aricept right now. Uh, The curcumin, which is an Indian spice, and there was a phase 2 clinical trial here at UCLA in which I was involved for the data analysis and some of the biomarkers assay. Films, um, to my point of view, is a formulation issue. So the patient were receiving two gram or four gram of curcumin but in a big uh, capsule and it's not uh, water soluble. So they were just excreted it okay, and there was I no absorption. Bioavailability. Um, we don't have all the bioavailability data but I'm sure there is a bioavailability issue is that the drug was just not absorbed because so I'm collaborating with Greg Cole who is actually looking at curcumin in different mouse model of AD and the effect is really um, important, it clears the plaque the difference is that for the, uh, the mouse, curcumin is actually uh, solubilized in oil and then coated around the choke. Mm-hmm. So because they put it in oil, then they solubilize the <laughs> drugs and then they give it to the mouse. That's one explanation. Of course, you know, mouse model is not the same as a human. And it might be also the yeah. time where they give it to the mouse compared to the human where we don't know exactly. Um, but when they eat it in India, they yeah. cook it in yeah, oil. Yeah, they cook Can it in you? oil. So, so I'm really sure, and now they have another, like Greg has a new formulation, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's just to convince people to redo a trial. Well, and, and they also had a huge amount of diarrhea because of the load I think. Of the GI yeah, lobe. I think they and was the just getting too much and yeah. nothing was absorbed, so yeah. they were getting GI adverse effects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next one is the DHA study, and at ICAD they uh, presented some of the preliminary results. Again, unsuccessful uh, regarding, so it was a um, clinical trial in um, Alzheimer's patient, no result on cognition, no result on behavior. But there was another trial that was interesting, which was on um, age-related memory loss. So patients who didn't have Alzheimer's and who were receiving 900 milligrams of DHA. And actually, that study show actually um, a decline in the memory loss when you give, uh, actually a reduction of the memory loss when you give DHA, so. In people who are normal. Yeah, people who are normal, but just the age related. Uh, So just take more fish oil. (laughs) Vitamin Mm -hmm. E, there is some uh, phase three trials that are in progress, but resveratrol, which is one of the compound of red wine, There are also some trial in progress, but nothing uh, published yet, so. Now why are those trials failing? (coughs) Is it just because our approach is wrong? Is it because we don't know the mechanism of the disease? Or because we are, uh, right now we are administering the drug when the patient already has the sign and the symptoms? But uh, it would be interesting to have some markers to. You know, predict who is going to convert to Alzheimer's and maybe treat before it's too late, because the pathology might begin years before the occurrence of the symptoms. Uh, here are some oh. healthy brain aging recommendations: <laughs> engage in challenging brain uh, activities, walk instead of driving, diet. And, of course, spice your meal. Uh, just, you know, add raspberry to your oatmeal, drink green, green tea or <laughs> black tea, spice your meal, add curcumin, uh, supplement your diet with omega-3, and then eat and drink purple food, such as red wine, because of the resveratrol. So all these are antioxidant, and it's just things mm-hmm. that we can do at any time. We don't know when it's good to start, but I guess the earliest we start, maybe the better it is. <laughs> Um, And now let's talk about my own research. So my interest is about uh, calcium signaling and why am I interested in calcium signaling in Alzheimer's disease. So in 1987, uh, Keshaterian showed that actually uh, there are altered regulation of the intracellular uh, calcium that actually can account for a number of uh, age-related neuronal changes and that also the cellular uh, mechanism which regulates the calcium homeostasis may play a crucial role in uh, the brain aging. And so from this, there are some speculation that maybe Alzheimer's is a calcium uh, pathology and may result of a chronic uh, elevation of the intracellular, so the intraneuronal uh, Mm -hmm. calcium uh, concentration that the calcium, uh, intracellular calcium, this homeostasis may affect the metabolism and the production of A-beta and tau. And then also the downstream event of the production of A-beta and tau and their accumulation may further (laughs) exacerbate the calcium dysfunction and lead to synaptic dysfunction and neurodegeneration. Now, does the calcium this osmeostasis lead to aberrant A-beta production, or vice versa, is it the, abe- uh, the aberrant production of A-beta that leads to uh, abnormal calcium, and so as you see, it's complex. There are many proteins that are involved in the calcium <coughs> signaling, and then that can also trigger the cleavage of amyloid beta and the phosphorylation of tau. Um, recently, the group of uh, Brian Backside at uh, Harvard Medical Center did a very interesting study in the APP PS1 mice, so they have APP mutation and PS1, the human mutation that are known to cause the familial Alzheimer's, and those mice are a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. And they did some uh, in vivo imaging, so they can measure in vivo by doing like a frame, like a window in the brain and measure the calcium. Uh, imaging in vivo, and what they found is that um, those mice when they have a plaque, that around the plaque, so at the near proximity as you see here is like 20 micron from a plaque, those neuron and astrocytes is actually an elevated intracellular calcium uh, concentration. And then uh, as you move like 60 micron, <coughs> they still have hyperactivity and then they have a reduced uh, number of excitatory uh, synapses, and then even further away, they still have a hyperactivity, and then they have the progression of the, the calcium, uh, intracellular calcium wave. So those the calcium overloads actually depend on the existence uh, of the plaques. Now, my interest, I'm interested in uh, the sodium calcium exchanger. So during my PhD, I produced a knockout mice for... Uh, one of the NCX isoform, and so now I want to investigate the role of the sodium calcium exchanger <coughs> in Alzheimer's synaptosomes. And so just a brief <laughs> introduction of the calcium signaling. So in ex- excitable cells, such as neuron, uh, following a stimulus, you have a depolarization and entry of calcium to the voltage-gated channel. And then increase the intracellular calcium uh, concentration which would lead, so calcium is gonna be a second messenger and can uh, be involved in some uh, vital functions such as neurotransmission and release of the neurotransmitter, it can also affect the metabolism of the neuron, uh, trigger the activity of some enzyme or some other uh, protein. But then if that elevation in intracellular calcium is maintained, is sustained, it can be uh, fatal for the cell, so too much calcium for too long will lead to apoptosis. So you have if you have high concentration of calcium in the mitochondria or in the um, endoplasmic reticulum, which are the intracellular calcium store, can be uh, damaged it can damage the cells and the cells can die. And so there is um, a protein which is the sodium calcium exchanger, which is actually involved in the removal of the intracellular calcium because after that elevation you want to bring it back to a physiologic level. And so the sodium calcium exchanger is involved in the removal of the intracellular calcium. Now synaptosome preparation. These are nerve terminal preparation. So we work either with a uh, mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, and this is a mouse brain, so you see how small it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we receive also post-mortem uh, tissue from Alzheimer's patients. So we receive pieces of uh, Alzheimer's brain. Minced it and then homogenize it in sucrose and after several centrifugation, those um, synaptosomes are resealed uh, nerve terminal. And this is what you can see um, by electron microscopy. These little balls you see less than, uh, it's between 0.5 and 0.75 microns. So Mm -hmm. on a regular light microscopy, it's very difficult to visualize them. So we have to use other techniques just to label them and to look at them. And uh, this is uh, the result of a study that is currently under review um, by cell calcium. So just keep my finger crossed. Uh-huh. <laughs> These are um, results on humans, some post-mortem uh, tissue. And uh, we have like four normal cases. So you see the average age is around 90 years old. Eight Alzheimer's patients from stage five to <coughs> stage six, so they are late stage. Alzheimer's disease, same thing, and like the oldest one was 105 uh, years old. In terms of plaques and uh, tangles, no plaques, no tangle in the control, and then here you see the distribution of those plaques. Depending on the disease, um, you have differences. Now, the sodium calcium exchanger, there are three different genes coding for three different proteins, N61 on chromosome 2, N62 on chromosome 20, and then uh, 19, and then N63 on chromosome uh, 14. And all three genes were actually cloned here at UCLA in the lab of uh, Dr. Philipson. So I'm interested to see if those different isoform are regulated in Alzheimer's disease. And this is a technique where you run the protein on a gel, separate them by size, and then you can detect them with specific antibody and semi-quantify them. So this band represents the presence or the absence, and if the band is more intense, that means you have more or less. Uh, and this is just a control to make sure that the, um, the difference is not due because of the loading issue, that we didn't load the same amount in each uh, lane, but is really uh, related to the pathology. And so you see that for N6-1, there is no significant difference between control of AD, even though there is a trend for a reduction in AD. n 62 2 is HUB-regulated uh, here in Alzheimer's, and then n 63 3 is done, uh, regulated in Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Then also we received, this analysis was on the parietal cortex, and so there is different regions that were uh, identified and we receive uh, regions, we uh, analyze uh, region seven and region 39, which is the parietal cortex and is uh, an affected uh, region in AD. This is another method, it's called flow cytometry, where we can label uh, also specifically the synaptosome with fluorescent antibody, measure the fluorescent and determine within a population, for example, of 10,000 synaptosomes. How many of them are fluorescent and express the protein, and how many of them are non fluorescent? That's what you have these percentages, and that's what it's expressed here. So it's a more specific method just to quantify. And um, so, same result as mm-hmm. from the previous technique increase in N62 and then reduction in N63. And now, with the flow cytometry, we can also double label those synaptosomes. And we can, for example, label them in green for the sodium calcium exchanger and in red for amyloid beta and see if the same uh, synaptosome express both and how many of them express both. So here in this quadrant, um, synaptosomes that are the green and the red are gonna be in the upper right. The one that only has NCX are gonna be upper left and then lower right are the one that only express um, beta, And, of course, we want to compare the synaptosomes that are affected, because, of course, in the brain, you're not going to have 100 percent of the neuron that has A-beta, because they would die before, before that. So in an average, maybe 60 percent, 65 percent of um, those nerve terminal contain A-beta. Then you want to look at how many has the exchanger and compare the synaptosome that has the exchanger and don't have A-beta, don't have the pathology. So that's what you see in gray uh, are the synaptosomes that only contain the exchanger, and then in black is the one that contains both. And you see when you have the uh, amyloid beta, those exchanger are all both upregulated. So my hypothesis is that maybe they are trying to um, protect the neurons. So uh, if there is an increase of intracellular calcium following the beta uh, accumulation in the synaptosome, the sodium calcium exchanger try to um, protect the neuron just by removing that excess, and maybe that's why it's upregulated. At this point, uh, because it's post-mortem tissue, you cannot do all the analysis with postmortem. and now I have uh, a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, and we want to do more, measure the calcium activity, Measure also see if there is an involvement in the glutamate transmission and see if there is we can do some uh, glutamate assay and that's what Alicia is that. working on and maybe that's going to be my next <laughs> that <laughs> seminar. That's the excitatory part. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. um, this is so mouse it takes a while you know to get enough enough animal and the advantage with the mouse model we can look at early stage of the disease so prior to uh, the pathology then. We can look prior to the pathology, then early stage, and then we can look at the late stage, things that you cannot do with uh, humans since we only get uh, you know, the I'm brain after it, it they die. They <laughs> die. <laughs> and so the conclusion is that they are um, selectively regulated and right now we don't know exactly why we have three isoform, and are they on the same uh, synaptosome? Maybe one is more for the glutamatergic transmission, another one is maybe more cholinergic. Uh, so that's something that I have to investigate also. So, and then finally, I want to thank everybody in my lab. Wilson, that is right there. and. <laughs> Uh, Alicia who started recently, and uh, Tyree who did the illustration uh, for me. Then Karen Gillis because I received most of the tissue from her lab. Then the Eastern Center, so Ari winter we get uh, the tissue from UCLA, and we also get the tissue from USC, from Carol Miller. And then finally, the Intramural Grant (laughs) that sponsored the (laughs) studies. Thank you. Any question? Yeah. The, the drugs that you talked about that um, had to do mainly with, with cognition, you know, mm-hmm. like improving cognition, how do you see them as tailored to Alzheimer's? Or do they have broad applications to any kind of drug? So it depend which one. The one that are amyloid-specific, they are, you know, targeted to di- to uh, Alzheimer's because amyloid beta so far yeah. it's only present in Alzheimer's brain. Now, for example, dimebone could have an effect on other uh, cognition, but apparently doesn't do anything. Actually, that's why it was, um, that's why they did the trial, is that patient in Russia was taking that anti-estaminate. This is some cognition improvement and some drugs that are stimulants, they have the stimulant effect or gonna have effect on memory, but if it's a neurodegenerative disease, it's not gonna slow down the the neurodegeneration and so that's probably why it doesn't work in E D. But my work in Student. The Russian study <laughs> before they scaled up the what was the name of the drug that the, be be bon? the early trials they used technology. Yeah, that's what I was, yeah. And in the large scale, they did. No, it was 20. 10 milligram the first week. They started and the they increased. The increase the um, so after the first week, yeah. Yeah, go um, go? yeah, maybe you know just to see the adverse effect. They probably did the same way on the um, because it was only for one week. They give ten milligram. Why would they change? It just in general, would you think you want to keep that? No, I think they did. I don't know in the trial, but it was only for one week. They, they give. 10 milligram, and then for 25 weeks, they give the 20 milligrams. Uh, sometimes they just increase just to make sure, you know, like taper up, so then it takes, you know, uh, they actually avoid like adverse effects. Because so the, the main that. adverse effect is dry mouth, which is like an anticholinergic effect. Uh, all that dry mouth sedation. So by tapering up, then those adverse effects don't appear. But it's only one week, so to me I think like one week is nothing. Um. They kind of it, they so they kinda get a layer down. Yeah. Mm. Do, um when you have increased stressful e- events and you have an increase in axis, do you get increased glutamate excitatory? I don't know, maybe. There seems to be a link between that and between then and then yeah. We need that We have to work out, We get the calcium out of the cell once it's in there. How do how do we do it? Or no, no, no. We have to the the ones that you're working. I mean, that, what the yeah, job just of those is? Yeah, to remove the calcium. Just keep them working harder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we want to look at. Is just We're like the glutamate. Over-tired. Look at the glutamate <laughs> release. Yeah. Um, If we modulate the sodium calcium exchanger and see, because the glutamate release is dependent on the the calcium concentration. So if you depolarize with uh, potassium, you depolarize the Um. membrane, you increase the entrance of calcium Calcium, by the voltage-gated channel. And so if we block the exchanger, right now we see an elevation of the glutamate release. It's not significantly different so far, but. We need a, a bigger N yeah. Yeah. and
1: like it's yeah. the
0: three month old animal, so we have to look at six no months. The young young animal. I mean, yeah. At three months, like the model, they don't have any pathology. They start at five months, six months, that's the early pathology, and then as they age they have uh, more and more plaques. Mm-hmm. So right now we are collecting the six months, but they are slow to breed. <laughs> are the exchanges, exchangers very specific to the synaptozoans or are they grow up in cells? It's transmembrane, and so. uh, it's at the, yeah, the plasma membrane, but also in the mitochondria. Oh, okay. uh, but it's hard to, by flow, it's hard to distinguish which one, and there is no specific antibody to detect the mitochondrial versus the, no, the versus plasma yeah. label. So if you label, I'm guessing I'm just picking up both. We did. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I know those are messy sometimes. Yeah. The graph is different. Yeah. So common. Common. Yeah. one of your graphs, your um, NCX's, I know that NCX2, the graph looked different. What's the significance with that graph then? Because I know that like the points. Uh-huh. They the were points. Yeah, the uh-huh. scatter plots, they were different. So is there like, is there one? Is about the third last slide. This one? Yes. There's a, I mean, I see that NCX3 and 1 are similar in terms of like all kinds Yeah, of this like one, so like there is like another, like maybe NCX2, it seems like it's widely expressed in astrocytes. And in Alzheimer's disease, there is also that astrocytic process. And maybe the elevation might be not only uh, synaptosomal, but also some astrocytes process, or maybe because that isoform might be more important and more neuroprotective than the other two. Mm. Right now, we don't... Like, there is not much about NCX1, 2, and 3 in the neuron, and even less in Alzheimer's disease. So, there only There are three publications from the 90s. So and at that time there was no, it was on s- only known as the sodium calcium exchanger, but yeah. not three different uh, isoforms. So this paper would be the first one, <laughs> mm-hmm. looking at the different yeah, isoforms, yeah. Yeah. So they have different functions. Yeah, different they, they functions? probably has different functions. And so n six, one is expressed uh, everywhere, like in the pancreas, in the brain, in the heart, and actually that's the only one in the heart. And the uh, knockout, and 6 one knockout, they don't survive. They are not viable because of the lack of heartbeats. Mm. So if you don't um, have it in your heart, heart you, you, cannot, can. uh, you cannot contract the heart. Work, yeah. mm-hmm. Then I did the n 3 knockout during my PhD work, and I looked at the neuromuscular junction, and actually they have abnormal neuromuscular function. And I have some collaborators who are looking at the ischemia in those mice and they are also seeing uh, differences. They are more susceptible to ischemia, so I would not be surprised that they would be more susceptible to um, any other neurodegenerative. Uh, And then N6-2, there is a mouse model. So N6-2 is only expressed in the brain, so nowhere else. All three are in the brain, but N6-2 it's in the brain only. And the knockout mice have actually an enhanced memory, so they are learning better. And for us, uh, like my uh, collaborator in Italy, they are looking also at memory, and so far they see a reduction in memory in the n 3 knockout compared to uh, the wild type mouse. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Very Thank very you. Well. Thank you.